Hey there, here's a quick note. This podcast contains general financial advice only. That means it's not specific to you, your needs, goals, or objectives. So don't act on the information until you've spoken with your financial advisor. You'll find our full disclosure, disclaimer, and link to our financial services guide in the show notes. Scott Phillips, welcome to the Australian Finance Podcast. I want to thank you very much, mate. It's great to be with you. Yeah, it is indeed. This is our second second run at this. We um, we had some technical <laughs> difficulties the first time, yes, and we here we are again, recording via Zoom. You're in Sydney, I'm in Melbourne. Yep. Um, today, we're talking about building an income-focused portfolio, this thing that we know uh, is called passive income, super yep. popular amongst investors. Yep. Um, so first of all, maybe I know you really well, but for those listeners who don't know you, um, yes. maybe you can just tell us what you do. Tell us, and they probably know you're part of the Motley Fool, but what are you doing mm-hmm. today? Uh, really good question. So uh, I'm the chief investment officer, uh, but that's a title. My day job is a combination of investing and I do a whole lot of writing, appearing on media podcasts like yours. Uh, you kind of have to invite me, uh, a whole lot of media, radio, TV uh, podcasts. I write for our website and our email. And then I also run three of our investment services. Uh, I run Motley Fool Share Advisor, which is basically a stock picking service. Uh, Everlasting Income, which is funnily enough, an income portfolio, which is a nice combination of what we're talking about today. And Motley Fool Platinum, which is our kind of capstone service that has everything uh, the Motley Fool has to offer all below it. So uh, a busy and very varied day. That's what I'm doing most of the time. Yeah, great. So you've got the, the, the two kind of wonderful aspects of our industry, which is the ability to educate people, but then yeah. the ability to actually get, get on the tools and, and do some research as well, which is great. Um, so today, as I said, we're talking about income from the stock market primarily. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so... Um, what I want us to start with the easy, easy one, which is why do some people focus on income? Like what, why do they approach the stock market in particular trying to get that income? That's a really good question. And what I like about it is you're not saying why is it good? You're saying why do people do it? And I think that's a really important distinction because it goes to the heart of, as you and I both know, uh, the behavioral and psychological elements of, of investing. A lot of people, well, there's two main reasons. The first is obviously people just simply want to pay the bills. And so if you're at a position in your life, whether you've formally retired at retirement age or whether you're doing the, the fire and trying to retire early, the idea of taking everything you've worked for, you've saved hard, you've invested well, and paying the bills with it, turning it into something that actually generates cash flow for yourself. Um, that's, that's one reason. The other is part of that accumulation process where people simply just say to themselves, you know what, I like making money and I like my shares going up, but gee, and frankly, right now we know it, gee, the market can be volatile sometimes. If I'm getting that check, if I'm getting that money in the mail, uh, check in the mail or, or the deposit in the bank account, I'm getting something tangible from my investments. There is something coming to me that I can say, yep, that's the thing. And I've got to say, I still, I've been in this for years, I still love the dividends rubbing in my bank account just mm-hmm. for income. When one drops in, it's like, they paid me for doing nothing. That's still a kind of a magical feeling. So there is that. There is a third too, mate, very quickly, which is a lot of people believe, and, and with some justification, that income-paying companies tend to be safer investments, higher quality businesses, less likely to be uh, drawn asunder by economic circumstance or competitors. Because if you've got the financial wherewithal to pay a regular dividend, you're probably an established business. You've probably got a good, decent cash pile. We call it a a solid balance sheet in the jargon, but enough money in in the bank to pay regularly to your shareholders. And if you do that without jeopardizing the business, it does infer quality, it infers stability, maturity. And that can be a nice market for some people too who are looking for that sort of business in their portfolios. Mm. Yeah, I, 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 I think the most common uh, reaction to people, uh, for people getting that first dividend check is, whoa, 
something just appears in my bank account um, and it's just like magic. Like yeah. money just I didn't, I didn't go to work. I didn't, I didn't have a boss to talk to. My young bloke still loves the idea of interest, right? The idea that you can put money in the bank and get some interest back, not as much of it these days. But that's exactly that kind of, kind of approach. Really quickly too, I, I think I discovered a, a, an appreciation for compounding of passive income. When I was a kid, I was lucky enough to grow up at a time when banks were offering you 6 and 7% interest at call for that very short amount of time when interest rates for mortgages were through the roof. And it was like, so, you know, like 0.112% is lovely. When you're getting 6%, you know, you get $3 from every 50 bucks you got in the bank. When you're a kid, that's, that's, that's even, even more magic. So I probably was fortunate to be, to be, have my formative years in that period of time. Mm. It probably was part of what made me uh, into the investor that I became. But yeah, it, it's, it is magic. Yeah, for sure it is. So a lot of our listeners, Scott, uh, would be invested in ETFs. They yes. may may have exposure to uh, listed investment companies because they might have heard about them through like uh, Scott Pape's book, or they may even come across real estate investment trusts or REITs. Um, and of course, they know property as a source of income. If you own an investment property, you can earn rental income, so on and so yep. forth. Um, so should investors be considering those as well? Or like maybe you can give us um, some justification given this is shares month on Australian <laughs> finance podcast of why shares should play a, an active role in that kind of mix. Yeah, lovely. So look, I, I'm, I'm a shares guy. Uh, I don't own any other investments other than shares, but I'm not, I'm not purely a shares guy. I'm not a shares guy because I'm a shares guy in the sense that, you know, I, I happen to do this for a day job, but my wife and I've talked about investment properties in the past. We didn't get there. I have owned an investment property in the dim distant past and would again if the opportunity was there. So I'm not here to say shares are the best or the only way to do it. They happen to be the, mm-hmm. the best for me right now in the circumstances I've found. Why shares and why, why passive income? Firstly, I suppose um, the ability to diversify with shares is much better than almost any other asset class. You can put a million dollars down on one Sydney home or uh, probably not dissimilar in Melbourne and Brisbane, and you have one asset, and it can be a great asset or it can be a lemon. So diversification, with them, I mean, might have a million dollars to invest in shares necessarily, but whatever you're putting down in shares mm-hmm. for $10,000, you could buy yourself 20 companies easily and still pay reasonable brokerage or a single ETF that might cover two or 300 companies. So you're getting that diversification up front. That's really, really important. Secondly, the cash flow you're getting from uh, shares don't require you to deal with a real estate agent or a tenant. Uh, they are much mm-hmm. better than, than cash in the bank. So the, 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 the quality of that cash flow, if you like, it's easier, it's simpler, it's larger than what you're going to get in the bank if you invest well. So there's that. I should say really quickly too, I know you've asked for the positives. The reality is shares are volatile. Shares go down sometimes. So you're not going to get that with cash in the bank, right? If it's a government guaranteed bank account, your hundred bucks is a hundred bucks is a hundred bucks and it will always ever be a hundred bucks. In shares, a hundred might go to 110, 120, or it could go to 60 or 70 or 80, at least for a period of time. And if you invested badly, it might stay there. If you invested well, it should grow again, but it's, it's volatile and there is more risk. So let's be really clear about that. The other advantage that shares offers that no other asset class does is franked dividends. The tax benefit mm-hmm. you get, the tax credit you get from the ATO because companies have already paid tax on the dividends they're paying to you. So if you get 100 bucks in dividends from a, from a company that's already paid tax on that, the government says, well, I'm not going to tax you twice. You have to pay tax, but I'll give you a credit for the tax the company's already paid. And that can offset your personal taxation. What that means is if you get, say, for kind of a 4% uh, in dividends as a, as a fully franked dividend, that's worth about 5.5%, give or take, um, to maybe close to 6 to me after those tax benefits. So if I get 4% rental yield or 4% interest in the bank, you're not going to get either probably, but if you did, and 4% from shares, they all look the same, but the tax advantages of fully franked dividends is massive and normally underappreciated by most. 
Mm. I think that's important. Like the franking credits is something that was a very big topic at the the last election. So uh, <laughs> two elections ago now. 2019, and, yeah. Um, yep. yep. And in that, people didn't really understand what they were. And I think yeah. you summed it up nicely there. It's the company's already paid tax. The Australian company's already paid tax. So therefore, when you get a dividend, which is paid out of those profits, um, you basically you'll get a you get a credit against your name at the ATO, provided you're eligible for them. Yeah, um, yeah, I, th- I think that's a it's a really neat way you packaged it up there about dividends um, being you know that source of return. And in the, the earlier question, you mentioned how some people perceive dividends to uh, dividend paying companies to be safer, Scott. I think. Yeah. Uh, in, in the previous recording of this this episode that we did together, <laughs> you mentioned that of every $10, I think you said maybe $4 on average can come from the, or every 10%, 4% can come from dividends. Is that, is yeah. that right? So historically speaking, and even if, as, we, as we speak now, um, if you look at the total return of the ASX, it's about 10% a year, super variable, of course, super volatile. Mm. Uh, it's been great years, it's more ordinary years, but over, over a very long period of time, about 10% is the average return you get from shares per annum. Of that 10%, about 4% tends to come from dividends. I think the average ASX 200 yields a little bit more than that, but close enough to call it call it that. So as you say, every $10 worth of return that shares gives you, just under half or four of those $10, 4% of that 10% comes from dividends. The other part comes from capital growth. And not every again, not every company, right? Some don't pay dividends, some pay higher dividends and have lower capital growth. Banks are a great example. Uh, NAB has actually gone backwards share price-wise over the last five years, mm. even, uh, and, you know, dividends. So, you know, you've got to be careful about how you weigh those two together. But, yeah, as a total market, about 4% comes from dividends historically and about 6% from capital growth. You actually, So you actually raised a really good point there, Scott. Like Some people think that um, you've got to rob Peter to pay Paul in order to get your <laughs> yeah. dividends, meaning that you've yeah. got to make a trade-off between growth and dividends. You can't have both effectively. Mm-hmm. So how do you find that balance between finding companies that are growing and yeah. finding companies that pay an income? Like, do you blend them together? Do you, some sort of rules or even just some examples maybe that might help illustrate how you go about making that distinction? Yeah, nice. And I've got to say, mate, to some degree, there is a trade-off or can be a trade-off between those two. So it's really important if you're looking for income producing companies in your portfolio, you want to say what you're looking for. Telstra is probably the best example. It's paid out an absolute heap of dividends over years and fully frank dividends at that. The share price has mm. hardly budged over what, five, six years? I haven't got the numbers, I haven't got them in front of me. But you know, there, there are some circumstances where if you, you're not necessarily trading them off deliberately, you're not saying, well, the company will grow less because it's paying a dividend. But you find that a business that is a stable, solid, really big business, maybe doesn't have a lot of growth opportunity because it's already Telstra, right? It owns most of the market. So what does it do with the excess cash? I guess it'll pay it to shareholders because it doesn't, it doesn't have those growth opportunities. Other businesses, will grow and grow and grow. Um, Warren Buffett's company, Berkshire Hathaway in the US, great example. Hasn't paid a dividend since 1965, has done a spectacular job of reinvesting those profits and creating lots of value for shareholders. So there can be a trade-off from time to time, or at least companies that exhibit different attributes. But a business like, say, Domino's, for example, um, it's grown really nicely from a three or $4 share price to what's 140 at one point, now at about 60 or 65. But that even that compared to 60 fold to 20 fold return, it's grown really nicely at a sales line, at a profit line. The share price has grown. And funnily enough, because profits have grown so quickly, which has driven the share price growth, from those profits, you can pay higher and higher dividends. And the dividend now is probably something like, I don't know the numbers, but it'd be a third or a half of that old $3 share price. Now, the share mm. price improved a lot, of course. But there are circumstances, if you can find growing businesses that grow not only sales but profits, 
You should expect that if they don't have a use for those profits to be reinvested for more growth, they can pay them out to you. And Domino's is a really great example. I own shares, by the way, full disclosure. I unfortunately didn't own them that long ago and I haven't held them all the way through. Um, <laughs> but that sort of story is if you can find those businesses that are profitable, that are growing relatively quickly, don't have a lot of need for capital reinvestment, which is horrible jargon for they don't need to keep all their profits and then you know use it to, to grow the business. They can afford to say, hey, we'll keep some of that for growth. The rest of it, you can have shareholders. And that's when you get a really nice combination of both. So there's not necessarily a trade-off between the two. What I will say quickly is Domino's dividend yield, which we'll talk about in a minute, as a percentage, was, has always been low. So you won't you weren't getting 4% to start with. You're probably not even getting 4% now, I don't think. But over that period of time, the growth in the dividend has been, A, you've had a dividend, B, it's grown. You've also had seen the share price grow at the same time. So sometimes it's worth trading off a higher starting yield or the yield you're going to get if you buy the shares. If you bought Telstra and Domino's at the same time, Telstra would have paid a fortune as, as, a, as a dividend relative to Domino's dividend at that point over the then, what, seven, eight, 10 years, 12 years. As the Domino's share price has grown, you've got better returns there. The dividend's grown much, much faster than the Telstra dividend has grown. In fact, the Telstra dividend has shrunk over that period of time. So it's a different characteristics, but it is worth, as you say, not just looking at the bare numbers and saying, that number is higher, therefore I'll buy those shares, or that number is lower, therefore it must be better capital growth. Look at the business, understand the business model and the cash flow, and that's when you can work out what you're looking for or what you might get from a given company. Yeah, you make a good two good examples there. You've effectively, when you're starting out, you're looking at Telstra and you're looking at Domino's, you're saying, oh, Telstra's got a bigger dividend yield, therefore yeah. that's the better income stock. Right, but if right. you think, oh, hey, I'm investing for 10 years mm -hmm. and Domino's got far better growth prospects, it could increase its dividend, whereas Telstra could decrease its dividend. Spot um, you, you mentioned there um, Berkshire Hathaway, which yeah. is a company that I know you've followed for many, many years for, for obvious reasons. Um, mm -hmm. And you say it doesn't pay a dividend, like Warren Buffett yes. hasn't paid a dividend out of Berkshire. Is it, would it be wrong then for some investors to think, oh, well, maybe instead of going for a dividend, what I can do is just sell some of the capital. Like that's, that's a strategy, right? That some people pursue. Is that, is that the same? Are we comparing apples to apples there? Yeah, pretty much. I should disclose I own shares in Berkshire Hathaway too. I'll try and do it as I go, but apologies for not doing that up front. Um, that's absolutely a way you can do it. There is no, in fact, you know, like for like, if you'd have not bought Telstra and bought, um, What's growing really quickly? Afterpay is probably a great example, right? Before it got merged mm. in the block. If you'd have bought both those at the same time and you'd have sold 10% of your Afterpay shares every year or 10% of the value every year, as it grew, you could have got more income from Afterpay and had better capital gains at the end of it than having just the dividends from Telstra, the boring, lazy old dividends. You could have sold mm. the shares instead and had some money. Now, I should say, selling shares doesn't come with franking credits and You've got to pay capital gains tax on that. Yeah. So it's not just like for like, right? You've got to be really careful about the, I'm not, I've said before, I'm not, a, I'm not the tax minimization business. I'm in the maximizing after-tax returns business, right? So I hope I pay a truckload of tax at some point because it's means I made a, a triple truckload of money. Um, uh, you know, the more, the more tax you pay, the more money you must have made, right? Which is, which is a great thing yeah. to have. So don't try minimize your tax, but think about, a dollar and a dollar you get from, as I said, from cash in the bank versus the dividend. Okay, well, dividend has franking credits. So the dollars aren't the same thing. The same as you say, a dollar of proceeds from the sale of, a, of an afterpay versus a dollar of dividends from Telstra. Again, same dollar, but one's going to carry tax credit. The other brings with a tax obligation. So just be, be thoughtful about the after-tax circumstance you're looking at. But yes, to your point, in fact, Warren Buffett's done the numbers himself that, you know, he has done the shareholders much better service by saying, if you had wanted a 4% yield from Berkshire, 
If you just sold 4% of your shares every year and let Buffett reinvest the other 96% for more gains, you would have been much, much better off than if Berkshire had paid that as a dividend. Now, I won't do the maths right now, but suffice to say, Buffett's pretty good at maths. Uh, and, and so he's got that right. So there are more than one way to skin a cat when it comes to passive income from shares. In Australia, though, it's a high hurdle to beat fully franked dividends from any other asset class because of that tax benefit. And again, because if you do sell shares you make money on to, to harvest some income, you've actually got to pay tax on those shares. So you're actually starting behind the eight ball. Frank dividends are starting in front of the eight ball. Uh, I think it's you know, not, one is not necessarily better than the other because again, with Afterpay, if you've, if you've 10x your money, it's not a, bad, not a bad problem to have to pay tax on that and have a trillion dollars left over. So I'm not saying one is better than the other. Just be mindful of the different style of income and the obligations and advantages of each one. Can I just ask some very simple questions then, Scott? Um, there are two things that you brought up there again. One was franking credits. So my first mm-hmm. question is, how do you identify which companies have franking credits? Yep. Um, so generally speaking, the best way is just go to your broker's website or the company's annual report, and they will tell you that the, that the yeah. shares are fully franked or partly franked. I will say really clearly that past performance is no guarantee in finance in general. You and I know that. The legal eagles make yep. us say that. We should because it's the right thing to say. But also... Companies can change those dividends whenever they want. So Telstra could tomorrow, it won't, but it could tomorrow say, we're having our dividend and it's not frank anymore. But, whoa, whoa, hang on, what, what, what? So, you know, it's, absolute, it's absolutely mm-hmm. possible that can change moving forward. But generally speaking, the simplest way to do it, I mean, there's plenty of websites out there. Yours may include this information. I'm sure it probably does. Um, you know, does Telstra pay frank dividends? And Google is probably going to give you a good result. Uh, but yeah, if you jump on, the, jump on the website, if you're looking at a company uh, and you might search, for example, for a high-yielding company, that's one way to start, the financial papers often still have share tables in them with an F or a P, mm. F for fully franked and P for partly franked in one of the columns. Um, many, many different ways of doing it, but your broker's website is probably the easiest way to go there. I know I use Comtech as it turns out. Uh, I'm not paid or supported by them, so there's no, uh, I also use mm. Perla. Um, in either case, you can look at the company's details. Often if there's a data sheet there, you'll see that it pays a, a partially a fully or an unfranked dividend. Yep. Great. And my second question was just another simple one is like dividend reinvestment plans. Even though we want yeah. income from the stock market, some people take the dividends and then put them back in to, instead of taking it as cash, they get it as more shares. So it compounds yep. their portfolio. Mm-hmm. How do people set one of those up? That's a really great question. So it depends. In Australia, you've got to do it via the company itself. In the US, you can do it with a broker. Some brokers do offer a similar sort of functionality here, but not many because it's expensive to do with chess. Um, generally speaking, your company that you buy shares in will or won't offer a dividend reinvestment plan themselves. And when you buy your shares, they will normally send you a piece of paper electronically or in the mail to say you can elect to take part in the dividend reinvestment plan. You just simply fill out your details, say I want to put all of my shareholding in or half of my shareholding, whatever it is, um, and nominate to the company that next time you pay a dividend, please send me shares instead of sending me cash. One catch to be mindful of, if you get shares instead of cash, the ATO treats those exactly the same. And you do still have to pay tax on that dividend, even if you receive shares rather than the cash amount. So if I get $100 worth of dividends, I'm paying tax at 30 cents per dollar. Keep my numbers easy. I pay 30 bucks worth of worth of, uh, worth of tax. If I get $100 worth of shares as part of my DRP, my dividend reinvestment plan, the tax office will still send me a $30 bill. So just be careful. If you are doing, I think dividend reinvestment plans are wonderful. I highly, highly, highly recommend them to people who don't want to be super involved in investing their money and say, look, you know what? I'll buy the right companies and let them reinvest my dividends for me. can be great. Just make sure you've got some cash flow on the side because you will still have to pay the tax bill. 
Mm. Yeah, that's great. I think um, that's a reminder not to throw out the paperwork that you receive if you're <laughs> yeah, a new a investor. Have a quick have a quick read of it and find out Dude. if it offers a D, DRP or or what have you. Yeah, nice. um, the, the the next thing that um, I think is really important for investors to consider, Scott, is basically diversification. Right? Yeah. If we have one investment and that one investment doesn't pay a dividend this year, then we get no income. Yeah. Um, I'm thinking, how many how many companies or how many you know ETFs? Like just generally speaking, what's required to be "Quote unquote diversified." Oh, great question. So let's step outside just income for a second. Talk about diversification in general. Um, the academic studies tend to vary. The old days, not that long ago, it used to be fifteen to twenty-five companies. They said was was accurate or enough for diversification adequate. I should say. Now it's kind of twenty to thirty is kind of the rough um, the rough number. It depends which study there'll be another study. I'm sure in a month's time it says something different. Mm. But you want to have enough companies that are broadly representative of the market you're in to get the full benefit of diversification. Effectively, what they say is if you add more after that. The benefit you get from additional diversification trails to almost zero. So, you know, obviously two companies completely undiversified, 15, getting there, 25-ish, maybe that's about the, the right pass score, something like that. So about 25 to be efficiently diversified. That math changes slightly. Uh, I won't go too far down the rabbit hole. When we talk about ETFs, because the ETF by definition is diversified. It might be diversified across a number of different companies. Now I'm talking here specifically about those low-cost, broad-based index ETFs. That's a lot of jargon thrown together. I'm talking about the Vanguard ASX 300 ETF or a BetaShares ASX 200 ETF. I'm not talking about the hyper-leveraged gold bear ETF that mm. just has 15 gold miners. That's not diversified, right? That's a, that's a consolidated, concentrated portfolio on a particular thing. But if you buy a broad index ETF, keep your costs low, then you are getting 200 companies in one instrument. Now, if, you, if that's 15% of your portfolio, pick a number, um, that's a really, really diversified starting. It's one position, 15% is a lot, and it absolutely is. But if you've effectively got a tiny percentage of all those 200 companies inside that 15%, then you're much more diversified than it would appear. In fact, you could have just one single ETF, an ASX 300 ETF, one, one unit, one, one investment. Normally, you'd say to me, I've only got one stock, Scott. Am I diversified? I'd say, of course you're not. One stock, that's crazy. But if you say, well, my one investment, one stock, if you like, is that ASX 300 ETF. I'm like, you're completely diversified. There is no need from a diversification perspective to go any further than that if you don't want to. So individual companies, 20 to 25 probably for most people. Um, if you add ETFs in there, the bigger that proportion of your ETFs are, the less individual companies you need to add to make sure you're diversified appropriately. Yeah, I think that's a great way to summarize the juggling those two things. If you're using ETFs, you don't have to have heaps and heaps. You don't need to have 20 to 25 ETFs um, oh, as you might oh, do yeah. with a share portfolio. And you can mix right. both together, right? So right. Um, there's there's one kind of, uh, uh, one more really important question that I think because you're an investing expert, you look at companies every day, that it'd be remiss of me not to ask is, <laughs> say, say you're running the Everlasting Income Portfolio for, for Motley Fool. Yep. Um, how do you go about identifying companies that will make for good uh, income plays like how do you find those companies what are you looking for in particular yeah that's a really good question because what we don't do specifically is look just at the highest dividend yields um, there's so many examples of companies that paid a really high trailing yield or looking backwards so trailing yield we say what was the last lot of dividends divided by the current price and you say that's fine but if the next lot of dividends are different that's the risk of using the trailing yield and so many times, Forge Engineering is a name that some of your listeners, your old listeners might remember. Uh, it was paying up on 8% dividend yield. And look, like, hey, 8%, how hard can that be? The business went absolutely stone marvelous for six months later. 
because people were looking backwards and saying, gee, that year looks good relative to today's share price. What today's share price was factoring in was this business may not be around in six months. And so that's really important to look forwards. Use the trailing dividend yield to give you some sense of what you might be able to earn, but always look forwards and say, firstly, is that yield sustainable? Can they keep paying that dividend? So what am I looking for? I'm looking for, firstly, a diversified portfolio, as we talked about. I'm not going to pick just that we have 19 companies and then a cash position in the, in the service for what it's worth. Those 19 companies aren't the highest yielding 19 companies. They're not even necessarily the companies that I think are going to be the highest yielding next year because I want diversification. I, you know, Having all four banks is not diversification. I've got four of them. I'm diversified. No, 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 you're not. You're totally <laughs> exposed to the bank. And many, many Australian investors have 50, 60, 70% of their portfolio in the big four banks. And, and tell themselves they're diversified. So we want to be diversified across industry, across company, preferably across geography if we can get it. Um, harder to get good yields overseas or from overseas-based companies because the dynamics are a bit different. Um, so you want to do that. When it comes to individual businesses, we're looking for solid business models with bright futures. Because here's the thing. If your business, we talk about dominoes and growing that yield over time. Most of our members want income now because they are often retired or about to retire. I want to know they can pay the bills. But they want that to grow over time. They want to keep up with inflation. No inflation is a big deal. So it's not growing. You're going backwards every year. So mm. you, want, you want a growing yield. You also want businesses themselves that are growing because generally speaking in, in capitalism, if you're not growing, you're dying. It's a bit trite to say, but it's also not miles off because the, the population is growing. Competitors are out there trying to take the lunch. The longer you sit still, the bigger the chance you're going to get overtaken or, or wrecked by someone else. So you want growing businesses. It's a sign of health. It's a sign of opportunity. It's a sign of, of a business model that's resonating with its customers. And that's how you stay in business. That's how you get bigger. So look at that as well. And then across the board, we're looking for combinations within that portfolio. So we've got uh, a company I own shares in called Washington H. Sol Pattinson. S-O-L is the code on the ASX for what it's worth. It's about a 2.5% yield, roughly something like that right now. Really low, you know, re relative to the average market of four we talked about before and some that are 55 or 6%, very, very extreme ends. But it's, it is probably the most stable non-ETF business on the ASX. In terms of pure bottom line, rock solid stability, no guarantees, but you know, if Sol Pats goes broke one day, the rest of the market's in all sorts of trouble. So as a cornerstone foundation position for an income portfolio, it's a great bit of business. It's paid a dividend every year since I think 1920. It's paid an increasing dividend every year for the last 20 years. You kind of go, okay, I can tick that box and not, not, with, not be blase about it, but kind of know you can have some stability, mm. some bedrock to your portfolio. On the other hand, uh, got a company, again, I own shares and we've recommended called Adairs. It's the homewares retailer. It's paying yield about six mm. or six and a half percent because the market hates this thing right now. It is so convinced that the economy is going to crash and it's going to be a recession. No one's going to shop at Adairs anymore. The share price is really low. The benefit of that is if they can hold the dividend where it is, it gives them a six and six and a half percent yield. Now, here's it's, I'll, I'll wrap this up, but here's where it's important. I'm not 100% sure that yield is sustainable at six and a half. Adairs might cut the dividend by a third because they want to conserve cash, because maybe there are tougher times coming in the economy. In which case, the six and a half goes to what, four-ish. Plus, by the way, franking credits. So we're back up to five and a half, five 5.6% when you include those franking credits, even after they cut the dividend. Now, maybe they do, maybe they don't. But having a portfolio of diversified businesses allows for some surprises. Hey, they can increase their dividend. That was a surprise. Others, hey, Adairs had to cut theirs maybe because things are tough. Overall, you, that's what diversification is about. And it's also why... If you start with a higher yield, don't bank that whole yield. Know that it might, if it doesn't come back, then hey, we're in, we're in clover. If it does come back a bit, hey, we're still getting a lot of money. That's still a good investment. And by the way, if you buy a cheap, air quotes, cheap stock, 
that's lowly priced right now because the market hates it. If you're right, the market's wrong. There's also the chance of some capital growth on top of that. And Adair is a good example of one we think is hopefully going to fit in that mold. But again, no guarantees, not a recommendation. Um, I, own it. I have recommended it to our members, but uh, for your listeners and viewers to consider how it might apply for them. But those are two examples of really different companies. They're both in that portfolio. They're both in my portfolio, um, specifically because they both add something very different. And as a group, I think that makes for a good combination of a diversified income producing portfolio. Mm, I think um, there's a lot to, to take away from that there, Scott. But one of the things that um, I'm going to take away is that you're not necessarily targeting the companies when you log into your brokerage account with the biggest dividend yield uh, <laughs> yes, written across right. the screen. Because yep. one of the things that you mentioned there is that maybe, hey, those are riskier companies mm-hmm. um, and they may cut the dividends or what have you. Whereas some of the companies like Washington H. Sol Pattinson, which trades under the ticket symbol SOL, is a company that's been around for longer than I've been along, alive, yes. longer than you've been alive. Like, more, than, it, more than a couple of my lifetimes, exactly. Exactly. So um, you you kind of, even though it's got a lower dividend yield, that's representative of the quality and the kind of longevity yeah. of that business. Yeah. Um, and so there's so much to, to pack into that. Um, now, I think this kind of brings us naturally to the, to the end of the discussion, Scott. So mm-hmm. if I can just kind of recap some of the key points here is that one thing you mentioned um, at the top of the show was that basically when you're when you, there are some advantages of owning shares um, or investing in the share market to mm-hmm. get income, um, one of those is franking credits. It's kind of like that boost on the extra on the end of the dividend yield. It's like an after-tax dividend yield, if you like. Okay. Um, and then uh, the other thing you mentioned was was of course that you know we're we're not necessarily targeting the biggest dividend yields because that can end us mm-hmm. in a spot where we get a dividend trap where we get stuck with a company that may not pay a great dividend. You said you can use you know different as- different types of investments to get access to the share market, such as ETFs and, and what have you. Um, you mentioned there that also you know there are certain advantages of being liquid in the share market, meaning that you can buy and sell, uh, you get exposure to more things. Um, whereas with a property, for example, it's one big investment typically for most people. Um, and I, I think that the other thing you mentioned is that you can it's not always a trade-off between growth and income, but there may be some trade-off there in terms of, yes, I want a Domino's pizza versus a slower growing Telstra or not even growing type of business. Um, and you mentioned, of course, the factors there. Scott, there's, there's a lot to take in. And I know a lot of our listeners are really passionate about this type of investing, getting income from their portfolios. Um, so if like you, you mentioned that we might have some content on franking credits. I definitely know the Motley Fool has content and <laughs> companies and research on franking credits. You run Share Advisor, you run Everlasting Income and Platinum. Where can people go to find out more about you and the Motley Fool? Uh, you're very kind of ask, man. You've summed it up beautifully, by the way. Well done. Um, so look, <laughs> obviously, the, the Motley Fool website, like fool.com.au. Um, I want to just throw out, my, we've chatted once before, but uh, Rask and the Motley Fool are at some level competitors. Uh, but mm-hmm. the good thing is it's a very big market and we're both on the side of, I think, the angels. So both on the side of good trying to help people do better. And mm-hmm. frankly, uh, if Ruskin Full have to both grow separately, independently, uh, while others uh, don't maybe grow so well, then that'd be a good result <laughs> for everybody. So I uh, appreciate you having us on, even though we are kind of, you know, friendlies at some level, but mostly just friends. Um, so full.com.au is, is the website. Uh, jump on the socials. I'm on uh, Twitter and Instagram at tmfscottp. Um, you can grab me on Facebook at facebook.com slash scottphillipsmoney. Uh, be warned, I tweet and comment about lots of stuff, including uh, things that aren't finance related, but uh, hopefully are, are interesting policy and, and general general kind of uh, general comments. Um, but yeah, look, plenty of places there, full website, as I said, or, or jump on one of those socials, you can catch up. Uh, we have a, a free email, but there's plenty of marketing that goes with that. So be warned, I don't think it's bad necessarily, but just you should know that in advance. 
Um, yeah, plenty of places you can get our stuff for free, mate. I'm all over the, the media, as you mm-hmm. said at the top. So um, you can't avoid me, whether you like it or not. But, uh, <laughs> give, give it a go if you can. Yeah, great. You've got podcasts too. So I'll put it yes, links yeah. into all the things uh, that Scott Thank does. You, There's a lot that he does. If you think that I do a lot, uh, dear listener, you should check out what Scott's doing. And, so, and you do, uh, by the way. <laughs> uh, mate, I really appreciate you being on the show and sharing some of your wisdom. Thanks a lot. Uh, very kind. Thanks, Alan. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of the Australian Finance Podcast, where our mission is to improve the financial futures of all Australians. If you'd like to learn more, create a free account at rusk.com.au forward slash account to download free episode workbooks, bonus resources, and take our amazing free personal finance courses. You can also join our online community by following the link in the description. If you enjoyed the show, what we'd love is for you to leave us a snappy review on iTunes. And you can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Rask Australia. Kate and I are also on both of those channels. Finally, if you have any feedback, suggestions for episodes or guests to come on the show, or you just have a question for us, shoot us an email at podcast at rask.com.au.